All right, friends, we are going back into the book of 2 Samuel, and this is chapter 4, and it's going to wrap up the civil war that occurred when Saul died, um, and David begins to become king. There's many years of civil war, and this chapter is going to wrap it up by recounting the death of Ishbosheth. And I'm going to use this chapter to just talk a little bit about how the material in the Old Testament narratives is organized um, in a way that displays pattern and symmetry. But first, let's deal with this chapter. It's quite short, which is nice. And pretty much all that happens here is Ishbosheth gets murdered and then David executes judgment on his murderers. But why don't we read it? I'll make some comment as we go, and then I'll talk about big picture stuff. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Okay, so Abner had been on this um, unity kick. Abner was technically the head of Israel's army, and he'd been going around saying, let's get unified. And so when people heard he'd been killed, uh, Ishbosheth now knew he had no head of his army, and Israel was discouraged at this unity attempt fail. Verse 2, now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banna, the name of the other was Rechab, sons of Rimmon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth. For Beeroth is also counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. So I'm not totally sure what all this detail is about. Um, underneath... Uh, Abner were these captains of raiding bands and so we're getting introduced to them but it's fairly fairly an intense introduction maybe what's happening is that because these guys are so bad and they do this like treacherous regicide murder of a king that's worth recounting who they are as a sense of like these dudes were bad and so it's kind of like a reverse good um Oh, what do they call these things? A genealogy. Often genealogies are there to honor people. Remember when this book started, we got a long genealogy of Samuel's heritage. Now, maybe this is a bad genealogy. Explain who these guys were because they're about to become the first murderers of a Israelite king. There will be others, but these will be the first regiciders in Israel. And then something strange happens. Verse 4, it starts talking about Mephibosheth. Jonathan, the son of Saul, who had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, she fell, and he became lame, or he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimmon, the Berothite, Rechab and Banna, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth, as he was taking his noonday rest. Okay, so interesting stuff going on here and you get a picture of how the old testament narratives organize themselves right off the bat you have this story of introducing the sons of banna sorry the sons of uh Beeroth, or rimen sorry and then you have the introduction of mephibosheth and then you have the sons of rimen coming back in this story and so there's almost this sandwich effect here sons of rimen mephibosheth sons of rimen and what the scholars call this is a um, chiasm, which is named after the Greek letter X letter or key. And so it's like got this X shape to it where the story goes and focuses down in the middle and then comes back the other side. If you see, if you think of an X in your mind, an X is almost like two uh, arrows pointing at each other. 
and the middle part is where it connects. And so this is kind of what's going on here where it talks about the sons of Rimmon and then it talks about the son of Jonathan and then it talks about the son of Rimmon again. And I'm not sure why this is happening here, but it is important. The fact that it happens and that this information about Mephibosheth is introduced here introduces it as the focal point and that something important is going on here. Now maybe it's comparing sons. The sons of Rimmon are about to do something bad and have something bad happen to them through David. But the son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, who's introduced here, is in the not-too-distant future going to have something good happen to him through David. So maybe it's just meant to introduce him so that when we meet him later, he's contrasted with these evil sons and um, who get judgment as opposed to this blessed son, Mephibosheth, who's going to get grace from David. So maybe that's what's going on here, but I just want to point out that that's what's happening. Anyway, we've returned to these sons of Rimmon. And if Ishbosheth is resting in the middle of the day, remember Israel is on the equator, more or less. And so many equatorial cultures have their siesta, their, their noonday rest when it's so hot, it's too hot to do anything. So they go and rest and wait for things to cool down. And then they have kind of the second part of their day. Verse 6, And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banna, his brother, escaped. Verse 7, When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed, in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by way of the Arabah all night, and they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. Okay, so again, just talking about how this story works. It's almost like you're seeing cameras in a movie. So you see the sons of Rimmon, and they're sneaking in, and, and then you see a picture of Ishbosheth, and he's resting. And then you go back to the sons of Rimmon, and they're like pretending to get wheat. They're like, oh, we came to get some food for our soldiers or ourselves. But then they creep into the bedroom, and then they stab him. You have this scene of stabbing, and then you have another scene of them like running out of the house. They're escaping. But then it seems to pick up the story again, and it explains that when they were in the house and they struck him, they beheaded him, and they took his head and were riding away. And so what you can kind of see there is like as they're leaving, maybe they have this, if you picture it as a movie thing, um, they have this sack in their hand. And you don't quite know what's in the sack, but then they explain later on, oh, they open it up, and it's a head. And so they tell the killing scene twice from two different perspectives. One is kind of like through the pretending to get wheat stabbing and running and the other one is like re-explaining more what happened in there they struck him and then they also beheaded him to carry the head away and then they go to see David with the head and David doesn't respond well now I wonder here where it says you know the Lord has avenged my Lord on Saul and his offspring and I wonder now if talking about Jonathan and Mephibosheth is going to be like the counterbalance like did God actually call for vengeance on the offspring of Saul? I don't think so. And then Mephibosheth, the fact that there's Mephibosheth named there is like David is going to say, I want to do a kindness to Mephibosheth for the sake of Jonathan. So David doesn't accept this thing like he's got to have vengeance on the offspring of Saul as well. No, God took care of Saul and David doesn't actually technically have any beef with the offsprings of Saul. Now, technically, he's Saul's offspring as well through marriage. You know, he's a son-in-law. But these these Rimmon sons are doing this, like, killing the offspring thing. And David 
isn't going to participate with that, and instead he's going to seek to bless the offspring later on in this story. Verse 9, But David answered, Rechab and Banna, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berothite, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziglag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house, on his bed, shall I now require his blood at your hand, and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed him, them, sorry, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them outside, beside the pool of Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. All right, so a few things going on here. So David is, again, judging people by their own words. Now, they do have the head, so he knows about the murder, but they've come to him confessing to have murdered their Lord, which David said is a righteous man, especially compared to you and your wicked men. And so he has them put to death, and he hangs them. Remember, in the, the law of Moses, to be hung is a sign of a curse. So David curses them with this hanging thing, cuts off their hands and their feet. So he really desecrates their bodies, as, and they really do deserve it. They're the first king killers in Israelite history, and they deserve this curse. So they are cursed for what they've done. And so when David does this, he um, is not presented in, in the story as having done anything wrong. And so the Lord's curse has come upon these men. Now, if you look at the these four first chapters of 2 Samuel, you have this chiasm effect happening again. In chapter 1, you have, and it's mentioned here, in chapter 1, you have this Amalekite who comes with the crown of Saul to bring news of having of Saul's death and claim to have participated with it in order to try to get a reward from David. And David puts him to death. Chapter 2, you have the rise of Abner as he leads Israel into civil war. Chapter 3, you have the death of Abner as he tries to lead Israel in reconciliation from the civil war. And then in chapter 4, you have the same thing where these guys are bringing the report of a dead king, this time the one they did. Well, they both claim to have killed the kings themselves. The second people really did it. And David punishes these guys for their claim of killing a king. But if you think about it, the story starts with punishment for regicide, claimed regicide, false regicide. The story ends with punishment for regicide, this time real regicide. And in the middle, you have the beginning of civil war through Abner, and then you have the end of civil war through Abner. And right in the middle... So when you have these two things like sandwiched together, the outside parts about punishment for regicide, and then on the inside you have this story of civil war, you start looking for something near the middle there, right? So let's just, I'm just scrolling up. Well, for one, you have right at the beginning of chapter three, which would be the middle of the story, you have this testimony about David's house growing stronger and stronger, and then you have this lineage of sons right in the middle and so what you what someone could look at this and you're just arguing this you're reading the story it's been intentionally written this way to have these outside pieces then these inner pieces focusing right at the x part or where the two arrows touch and right in the middle of this you have this story about david's children and so it's almost like in the midst of the civil war the main focal point is that god is building david's household 
He's building it. He's giving him sons. He's establishing him. He's growing stronger and stronger in the midst of the civil war. And the, this king that keeps growing stronger and stronger is not like pagan kings. Remember, this whole started when they wanted a king like all the nations. David isn't like a pagan king because he's not out for the blood of his enemies. He's out for the righteousness of God. And he punishes people who wrongly try to kill his enemies and murder his enemies. He punishes them because he wants a kingdom built on righteousness. And that's what's going on here. So that's the center point of these of this this story sandwich. The story of the civil war of Israel has a central point and it's God building David's kingdom during this time. And so when you're reading Old Testament narratives, you're meant to be looking for patterns like this. It could be a series of patterns that remind you of something. It could be like this Kaizen pattern where it starts and ends the same way and then there's similar material in the middle. You know, I didn't even mention like the death of Asahel and the vengeance for Asahel being in this like inner sandwich part. But you can start looking for these patterns and they're meant to be there. And the prophet who writes these stories is trying to give order to the stories because they believe that God is ordering the universe, ordering the story of his kingdom. And by seeing and patterning these stories, they're telling us that the hand of God is ordering events even when the events look disordered. And we can trust God the same way in Genesis 1, God came to the chaos of uncreation and brought order and life to it. Three days building things up, three days filling things up. God brings order to chaos and rules over the chaos. Same with human history and the history of the kingdom. It looks chaotic and yet God has is ordering events and ruling over the disorder in such a way that the prophet can tell the story and just point out the balance and the perspective and the order that's going on there. And so it is a theological narrative that is meant to uh, be beautiful when we look at it, but we're also meant to see, hey, God's hand is ruling over this stuff and he's tying up loose ends and he's sandwiching things together and he's pointing us to central important things so that we can see what God values and what God is doing when he's pulling off these stories. So um, if you want to talk more about that or you have any questions, you can ask me. I really love seeing this stuff when I learned about it's called technically the Poetics of Biblical Narrative. When I learned about this stuff, it just opened up for me tons of beauty and theology in the Old Testament stories. And that's why I like sharing these stories with you and how I read them so that you can see it too and enjoy the Lord. Even in the midst of a civil war, God is fulfilling his promise to David to establish him as king. And as David just keeps trying to do the right thing, God works out righteousness through him and takes care of the wicked uh, by pouring their wickedness back on their own head. 